Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, we're going to be continuing in, in Proverbs chapter 5, and I'm going to jump into the text pretty quickly without much of an introduction. The introduction I'll do is, is simple, and, and it's just going to be straightforward, okay? This passage is about sex. This passage is about adultery. And it's actually, at times, a little bit explicit in some of the things that it says. And so my job here is to preach the biblical text, to present to you what the Scripture says. And so if there are any parents that have young children still in the room, just know that that's what com- what's coming. We're going to talk about what to avoid, what happens when you fall, what to pursue, and then we're getting a final challenge out of this passage. That's the way the, the author, the, the great sage, the, the wise man in this passage is leading us through the difficulty of a battle against sexual sin. And here's, and here's uh, something you need to know about this. The Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is pro-sex in the right context. The Bible recognizes that God created man and, fe- and male and female. And God created sexuality. That was God's idea. God created marriage. And God created the system in which sexual health could exist. That's what we're talking about here in Proverbs 5. And so it will, be, it will be not just don't have sex, but it will be look at the beauty of what God has created when you do it the right way, when you live according to God's plan. So with that, I'm going to read you the first few verses as we sort of prepare to see what God is going to say to us. Romans, or Proverbs 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. That's Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 there. That's the introduction to the passage. Okay, so, so here's, here's the what to avoid part of the passage. And it's really simple. It's really straightforward. The only reason that it could be potentially difficult for us is that we overall are a little bit com- uncomfortable talking about sex in public settings. But this is a very straightforward passage. It's super simple, so we're just going to approach it really simply. This is a man talking to his son. Remember, that's the context of the whole first nine chapters of Proverbs. You have a wise man, who who we think is most likely Solomon, that is speaking to one of his sons, saying, this is the path towards wisdom. This is what you need to pursue. This is what a wise life looks like. But all throughout Proverbs 1 through 9, this father is continually giving his son a choice. There's two roads, the wise road, the foolish road. This is what the wise road looks like. This is what the foolish road looks like. So here it is here. There's the wise road, and there's the foolish road. So verse 1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. He's saying again, I'm going to tell you the difference between these two roads. And verse 3, he tells you what's on the road of foolishness. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, 
sharp as a two-edged sword. What do you think the Solomon means by a forbidden woman? A woman that is not the son's wife. There, there's a context here. He is speaking of not just, oh, he's not saying avoid sex, look out for sex, it's a bad thing. He's saying avoid the forbidden woman. Avoid the temptation to follow after the forbidden woman. Why? Because you think it's going to be sweet. And on the outside, everything looks good. And you're attracted to the sweetness. It says, her lips drip like honey, he says. But in the end, the aftertaste is bitter wormwood. And so that, that's the image that he's giving us for what sexual temptation and sexual sin can, can look like. It looks good, but then it ends bitter. It ends in heaviness. It ends in brokenness. Sexuality lived out wrongly outside of the context that God has designed within marriage between husband and wife. That leads to bitterness. This is the path that he is demonstrating here. And so he is personifying, and this is the thing that, that we remember throughout Proverbs. He personifies wisdom and foolishness as two different women. Not because he's sexist, but because he's talking to a young man. He's talking to a young man and say, the road to wisdom looks like this wise woman that you pursue. The road to foolishness looks like this forbidden woman that you pursue. So avoid the forbidden woman and pursue the wise woman. The end of the road in, for, in pursuing the forbidden woman is bitterness and being cut apart as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not wander the path of life. Or she does not ponder the path of life. Sorry, she, her ways wander and she does not know it. The path of wisdom, the path of sexual sin, is aimless. This is the person that just wanders through life without clear purpose, clear direction. Listen, this is what Proverbs is really showing us. This is one of the most, what, most perfect summations of the book of Proverbs and what Solomon's trying to show us in verse 6. The way of foolishness is somebody that does not ponder the path they're on, but just wanders their way through life. Think about that. We can apply that in any number of situations. That's not just an application that works within the context of sexual sin and temptation. That can go anywhere in any sort of setting. That if you are, are just wandering through life, not reflecting on life, not really considering your steps, then your end is going to be destruction, death. Your end is going to be following this path that leads towards death. And so the way of the foolish woman, the forbidden woman, is bitterness, death, and no intention. Think about, Jess and I argue about this all the time. Um, sorry, more like she confronts me on this all the time. But one of the things that I do is I get into the car, and I think, well, yeah, so we're going this place, and I haven't been there in a while, and I kind of know where I'm going, but I don't really know where I'm going. And we get partway there, and I'm like, you know, we should probably pull up the directions, which is, like, technically not something you're supposed to do, like pull out your phone while you're driving, right? And so, but what, I, what happens is that I'm like, well, Jess, you need to, you need to pull up the directions because I can't pull up the directions. And we have this conversation so many times. Why? 
if you don't, if you're not exactly sure where you're going, why don't you pull out the GPS before we leave the driveway? That would be the time to set forth the course. And I was like, well, I know 60% of the way. I know 80% of the way. I can get to the neighborhood. I just don't know the house. So then I get to the neighborhood and I need a little bit of help finding the house. And she's like, no, let's set the course at the beginning of the journey. And so in this illustration, Jess is the wise woman and I'm the foolish man, okay? Because I think I know where I'm going. I have a concept of a general idea of where I'm going, but without a defined course, without making decisions ahead of time of when this comes, I make this turn. When this challenge comes, I make this decision. If you're not prepared for the various uh, roads that you face, along, the various uh, turns and, and uh, the, the different places that you have to make all those micro decisions in your life, whether it's when you're in a car and you decide, do I turn right or to the left? Or you're in life and you're faced with an opportunity and you have to decide, am I going to choose the righteous path or the wise path? You have to know what that path looks like. And so what the scriptures are telling us right now is one of the ways of setting that course is to not wander through life aimlessly when it comes to your relationship with the opposite sex. When it comes to your romantic feelings or your attractional feelings towards another person. And so in marriage, it, it looks like this. In marriage, you've set that course. You've chosen your path. When, when you stand in front of God and many witnesses and you make a vow to another person, that is you placing a firm foot on that path and saying, I will not stray from that path. This is now my path. I've chosen my life, my future with this woman. I've chosen my life, my future with this man. When two become one in marriage, that's a firm decision. That's a lifelong decision. And then anyone else outside of that marriage relationship is, according to Scripture, Forbidden, that's who the forbidden woman is here in Proverbs 5. Somebody that is not, uh, in, uh, not married to this young man. So in marriage, we know, like, the, the woman that God has put you with in marriage, that's the woman to pursue. All other women are to be avoided. But what about in dating? What about when you're not married yet? How do I live that wise path? How do I make those decisions? How do we, as an older generation, instruct the younger generation in wisdom? Because I want you to be thinking about that too. I want you to be thinking about children, grandchildren, youth in our church, kids in our church, all of the sexual temptations and opportunities that we have in the world in which we live. How do we pursue wisdom and train the next generation to move in a path towards wisdom? Because we can't just say, marry one person and, and limit your sexuality to the relationship with that one person. That's right, that's true, that's good. But we need to be more uh, detailed in our instructions. We need to be more aware of the various challenges that get faced along the way. Not just what the path looks like, but the individual steps to get to that path. What does a dating relationship look like? What does friendship with the opposite sex look like? What, what, what does hanging out in, in, in those mixed groups, what does that look like that sets you up towards success? But also, what does dealing with temptation look like? Because at the end of the day, this passage is about sexual sin. But there's lots of general truths about temptation in general. 
And so what happens when you fall? That's what we're going to go next. That's in verses 7 and following. But we're going to see how certainly the passage is first and foremost about sexual sin. But there are applications and implications for any battle with sin that we face. Here's what he says. Now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verse 8. Keep your way far from her. The New Testament says, flee temptation. Flee youthful lusts. What Proverbs and the New Testament authors agree on is that flirting with temptation, flirting with sin, is going to ultimately lead us towards sin, towards the opportunity for sin. We all face temptations of various kinds. I use this illustration all the time in talking to individuals. I've used it in sermons before. One of the, the classic lines on sexual, or not on sexual, but just on temptation in general and how Christians battle temptation comes from Martin Luther. It's a 500-year-old illustration that still makes a ton of sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to you. Martin Luther would say that you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head. But what you can stop is you can stop that bird from making a nest in your hair. Okay, so what happens is that we get tempted. That's the bird flying over your head. You can't stop that. You are going to occasionally be faced with temptations of various kinds. You're going to be faced with sexual temptation, like this passage is saying. But, there, but the temptations we face go far beyond just the sexual temptations. We're going to be faced with all sorts of temptations, and those are the birds flying over our heads. But what we can stop, we can stop that bird from making a nest in our hair. But you know, the way to stop birds from making your nest in, the hair, in your hair is to avoid them when possible. Can you always, in every circumstance, avoid a bird flying over your hair? No. Can you avoid putting yourself strategically under a flock of birds that are flying in a certain location? Yes. So there's, there's a both and here, right? There's a, we cannot avoid ever experiencing temptation again. There, will, there are temptations that will come before us that we will just have to battle with the power of the Spirit as our aid in that. But also, there's a whole lot we can do to avoid temptation. That's what he means by keeping your path far from the forbidden woman. Don't get so close that you know because you're close to that path, you're going to be tempted. Don't play around with temptation. Don't pretend that, well, I, I, I can get close to this temptation. I can go this far. I can surround myself with this person who I know is, is going to tempt me towards sin, but I don't have to fall in. I'll just pull back at the last minute. That's foolishness. It's foolishness to play around with temptation. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about a light view of temptation. He says, be careful how you treat God, my friends. 
You may say to yourself, I can sin against God, and then, of course, I can repent and go back to God and find him whenever I want him. You try it. You'll sometimes find that not only can you not find God, but that you do not even want to. You'll be aware of a terrible hardness in your heart, a hardness that you can do nothing about. And then suddenly you recognize that it's God that is disciplining you in order to reveal your sinfulness and your vileness to you. There's only one thing to do. You turn back to him and say, oh God, do not go on dealing with me judiciously, though I deserve it. Soften my heart, melt me. I cannot do it myself. You cast yourself utterly upon the mercy of God and upon his compassion. So what do you do here? You don't play around with sin and temptation and think, I can go this far, but then if I fall, God will forgive me. But then I'm going to try not to fall all the way. And that's a, what he says, playing games with God. Be careful about treating God like that. Because over time, the more you give in to sin, even at a micro level, the more your heart is hardened. The more you no longer want to follow the Spirit and live in righteousness. The, the less guilt and conviction you feel as the Spirit is working in your life. The way to fight sin is not carefully, is not managing it, is not, well, I'm going to go this far but not farther. The way to fight sin is dramatic. It's putting to death the deeds of the body. It's actually saying, I am going to keep my way far from sin. I'm going to flee from sin. I'm going to put sin to death in my heart, in my mind. And so when there's something that causes you to fall, thinking about sexual sin, the most prominent sexual sin within our generation is internet pornography. Statistically, it's everywhere. In the church, out of the church, everywhere. Young people, old people, men, women, everywhere. People are tempted with pornography. It's readily available. It's the easiest to access sexual sin. And so what do you do? You keep yourself far from the forbidden woman of internet pornography. You, you put those, those guardrails up tight, and you put them far from where you can fall. If you know that you're prone towards temptation in that area, you've got to build a wall. If you know your kids are, your grandkids are, you've got to build a wall. And you've got to do everything in your power to make sure that you don't accidentally fall into a place where you're going to be tempted. Recognizing sometimes temptation surprises you. But don't camp out under a flock of birds and expect that temptation to not come upon you. So this is the, the, the one key principle bringing out of verse 8. It's so important that if we can walk away with a key principle about how we deal, not just with sexual sin, but with any sin in our hearts and in our lives, keep your way far from it. Keep your way far from a context in which you might fall into sin in verse 8. Verse 11, at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. You know, covering up sin takes an intense amount of energy. Sometimes it takes money, time, focus. Do not believe that you can cover up sin in one area and it not affect your overall life. When your flesh and body are consumed, what he's saying there is that this person has walked in sin and tried to cover up a part of his life and then he is eventually consumed by it. You cannot be perfectly righteous in one area and sinful in another area and not expect 
the sin to infect every area of your life. It does not work like that. So when you have an unconfessed sin, when you have a sin that you're dealing with lightly right now, confess it. Repent. Walk away. Keep your way far from. See, sometimes what happens with sinful people and sinful minds, you get frustrated in your marriage. Maybe you're sick of the conflict. Maybe you're sick of the way your spouse treats you. And there's a coworker that you just really enjoy talking to, that you enjoy laughing with. And over time, simple flirtation can come and it can lead into so much more and more and more. Sexuality, brothers and sisters, is a gift from God that is good in the right context and deadly in the wrong context. Verse 12 gives us a lament that reveals to us two more principles for what we should do as we fight sin. Remember, the first principle was verse 8, run away. Keep your way far from the opportunity for sin. Two more principles in the lament that we find in verse 12. The lament of the sexual sinner at the end of his life. How I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. That's the predicted, the predicted lament of what a sexual sinner will face at the end of his life. So what did he avoid? Discipline and reproof. So what do we pursue? Discipline and reproof. That's our answer for dealing with sin. We want discipline. We want to grow our discipline in, in multiple different areas of life. Do you know something that generations of Christians have known? Ever since, ever since the ancient church, Christians have known that life is better when it's integrated, that you fight sexual temptation better when you are disciplined in other areas of life. You fight any temptation better when you are experiencing discipline in other areas of life. So you discipline yourself in times with Scripture, in times of prayer, those spiritual practices that feed our souls help us fight temptation. It's what, what the church has known for, for 2,000 years. Interestingly, brain science starts to, to catch up and, and have evidence of, of these sort of things within our modern day too. Uh, brain science will now tell you that self-control, per, personal discipline, is all interconnected within your life. And so discipline in one area creates discipline in another area, creates discipline in another area. And on the flip side, Here's the warning. A lack of discipline in one area creates a lack of discipline in another area. Creates a lack of discipline in another area. And so you cannot, just as I said, you cannot be completely righteous in 80% of your life and sinful in another area of your life and expect that to not have an effect. So you cannot be self-disciplined in everything in your life except one area and expect the bleed over to not occur. It's just the way that it's just the way your body works, the way your mind works, the way your soul works. And so if you're disciplined about reading scripture and, and praying and all of these things, your work life is disciplined, but you have this one little outlet that you give yourself. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's something that feels less innocuous, like just overeating. Maybe it's something like alcohol, of like, I'm super disciplined over here, but I'm going to give myself to this one vice over here. It bleeds. It bleeds over. It will eventually. And so Christian, pursue discipline in all areas of life. Be balanced. You know, you can fight sexual sin and temptation by discipline in scripture reading, by discipline in fellowship with a local church community, by discipline in prayer. Because the more discipline you develop in one area strengthens your discipline in other areas as well. 
So don't compartmentalize your life and say, I have to be really responsible over here so that I can get to do whatever I want over here. It will not work that way. Discipline is the answer. And reproof is the answer. Sin thrives in the dark. And God is the king of the kingdom of light. Jesus came to rescue us from a kingdom of darkness and transfer us into a kingdom of marvelous light. Reproof is important. You know what reproof is? It's correction from another person that loves you and cares about you. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is take sexual sin off the table for right now. Make everybody a little bit more comfortable. We won't talk about sex for about three minutes here, okay? The way you fight any sort of temptation is by opening yourself up to correction from other people. The broken man at the end of his life, the lament, I lacked discipline and I hated reproof. People tried to correct me. People tried to tell me I was going the wrong direction. People tried to guide me, tried to course correct me, and I ignored them. It wasn't just a personal discipline. That's, that's, the, that's the personal level failure. But there's also a social level failure. I didn't let other people in. I didn't let them see. I, and when they saw and they tried to correct, I ignored them and I hated it. This is something, this is an application we can take home for any level of temptation. Verse 8 says keep far from what causes you temptation. Verse 12 says you need discipline in all areas of life. Verse 12 also says you need to open yourself up to reproof and correction. And you cannot live a life open to reproof and correction unless you live a life close to other people. Unless you trust other people enough to let them into your heart and into your mind and to live in relationship. So discipline is the personal application. Reproof is the social application. But verse 14 tells us what happens at the social level when we ignore that. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Think about the depths of the depravity and sin that this man is facing after a life of pursuing sin. He's sitting in a room of people, maybe just like this. Maybe he's sitting in a room of 150 people like each of us are right now, and he's sitting there and he's dying inside. And he's having to fake it. He's having to act like he's not in utter ruin, But in his heart, he's so broken, he's so desperate by the path that he has chosen and by the the decay of his own heart that he feels at the point of utter ruin in a group of assembled people and he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. That's the tragedy of what sexual sin does. It cuts us off from other people. It causes us to lie to cover our past. It causes us to live in the darkness And as we get farther and farther from other people, we get more and more cut off and we experience the ruin of that behavior. Remember verse 5 told us that this woman, her way ultimately led to death. And you follow her, you're going to end up where she ends up, at the place of death. Okay, so that's all the bad news, okay? Verse 15, here's what we do pursue. Because when we talk about sexuality, We talk about various types of temptation. It is very difficult to just avoid something without knowing what to pursue. We talked about that at the heart level last week. You can't just decide, I'm not going to do something unless you replace that affection with something greater, something more significant. 
And so the Bible doesn't just say, don't do all that bad stuff. The Bible says, pursue righteousness. And as you pursue God, Jesus, righteousness, the wise path, know that there's all this stuff down here that you're going to have to continually avoid. But the point is not avoidance. The point is pursuit of the right things. So often we present this view of Christianity, of the Bible, that all the Bible does is tell us to say no. No to this, no to that, no to that. The Bible doesn't just tell us to say no. The Bible actually centrally, most importantly, says go do this and live. Life is better this way. Life is more fulfilling. There's more hope. There's more joy. There's more light. There's more completeness in this path. This path will destroy you. The Bible's not picking on you. God's not picking on you. He's telling you, you were designed to live this way, so pursue that path. And this way, living contrary to your design, is going to destroy you. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So this is what he's saying. He's told you what to avoid, and now he's saying, actually, you were created with sexuality. You were created with, with desires, and those desires can be really fulfilling, can be really good when they happen in the right context. The illustration he gives is water. You know, water can be both good, life-giving, and incredibly destructive. So in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Water brings life. Water is good. Verse 16, don't let, don't let your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. What is that? that that's a flood. That's destructive. That's water out of control in places it shouldn't be that is causing destruction. That's your illustration. Sex is life-giving when it's in the right context. Sex is destructive when it's not in the right context. When it is in your home, when it is with your spouse, there's good, there's beauty. God created you to enjoy that. And yet, when it's out in the open with others, not in the context of, of a marriage relationship, not in the covenant of God that God has created for man and woman to share together, it is destructive. Others use the illustration of fire. Fire is great and brings warmth when it's in the fireplace. And it brings destruction when it gets out. So those two illustrations of water and fire are good illustrations for what God's view of sex and sexuality is. Do it according to the, your design, according to has, how God has shaped you to, to enjoy sexual fulfillment. And that is in the context of a committed marriage, of a loving marriage that, that embraces God's covenant of, of love between man and woman. But when it's out of that, it's destructive. It will destroy you. It will destroy the other person. It will destroy society. And it is. So much of what we see, and so much of, of the rampant sin in our own day, is what happens when we misunderstand sexuality, when we misapply sexuality, when we pursue sexual fulfillment above all other things, above what we know is right and what we know is good. 
Listen, here's the overarching theological point from this whole text. Sex is good, was created by God, it was God's idea. That's doctrinal. That's theology. God cares about your sexuality. God cares about how, created, how he created you and how you are to function in a, in a life of hope and joy and fulfillment in the way he created you. His design for your sexuality is defined in scripture. It's man and woman leaving their family, cleaving together, becoming one flesh. This passage emphasizes that sex is better with one person in a home, in a place. That, that's what that cistern is, what that well is. That is your wife he's talking about. But it also confirms the biblical conviction that sex is intended between man and woman. Maleness and femaleness matter in Scripture. God created them male and female, and he designed sexuality to work between male and female. We live in an age in which there are more sexual options than ever before, and it's scary to think about. The Scripture has no context for that. The Scripture... Sorry, let me say that differently. It's not that the Scripture doesn't know that that's going to happen. It's that the Scripture isn't specifically addressing all of the issues of our day. But what Scripture does say is there is one way for sex to work according to God's design. One man, one woman, in a committed marriage. All the other options of the LGBT movement or of our sexuality and our, our hypersexualized culture, all of those other options, if they are not the context of man and woman married, they are against God's design and God's definition of what is righteous in our sexuality. God created us a certain way. If we are going to live with wisdom in our age, then we should know that this passage is saying more than this is how sex should be applied in an ancient culture. We have to see that this passage is saying something timely that applies to wisdom in every culture. And this teaching is theologically based in the design of God, one creator over our, over our bodies. He knows who we are and what temptations we face. And he says, this is how it works. This is how you can find joy and fulfillment. Now, what do we do with sexual sinners? What do we do with those that are tempted and that fall? You know, this passage, one of the things about Proverbs is that it doesn't always address repentance. It doesn't always address what happens when, when, you, when you turn away. Proverbs is constantly calling you to get back on the wise path, to avoid the sinful path, back on the wise path. But the final challenge in here, let's look at this, and let's see what Christ adds to this. The final challenge of this Proverbs 5, a man's ways are always before the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's a hopeless ending for a sexual sinner. But it didn't have to be that way. I've said it many times that what Proverbs tells us is that wisdom is the path towards life, the path towards hope. And what the New Testament tells us is that wisdom is a person, and his name is Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor that's come to guide us into, 
back into the path of God, back into the family of God, where our sin has led us astray. Traps have been laid out for us. Our lack of discipline has killed us. All of those messages of Proverbs 5 are true. Jesus pulls us back. Jesus is the good shepherd who pursues those that wander away and brings us back. And so we, we cannot go on without saying there is hope for the sexual sinner. There is restoration. There is always an opportunity for grace, always an opportunity to turn around, repent, and pursue what Christ has given us as the guide. And so the gospel states that every single one of us is a sinner. And, and let's be honest, many of us are sexual sinners. Jesus says, that you've heard that it say that it, that it is wrong to commit adultery, it is a sin to commit adultery. I tell you that anyone, any man that looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. That makes us a room full of a lot of sexual sinners. But a room of sexual sinners that have an opportunity for repentance, for redemption, for reconciliation with God, where the gospel shines forth and says, we're all broken, we're all sinners, but we have an opportunity for grace. And Jesus is sitting right there offering to us the grace of the cross where he pays the penalty for our sins and where we receive restoration from him and new life from him. And that gospel call goes out to all of us, regardless of what sexual sin we've committed. One of the things we're really good about is really emphasizing somebody else's sexual sin over our own sexual sin. And let's recognize all, all sins have different implications in society, and sometimes sins can affect other people more than other sins. But what Jesus says to us is if you have committed lust in your heart, you are a sexual sinner in need of redemption. That puts us all at a pretty level playing field here this morning. That at the end of the day, we're sexual sinners in need of a Savior, in need of the gospel. And so whatever it is, the battle you're facing, the temptation you're facing, Jesus is calling you back. He's calling you back towards the righteousness that you left behind when you first sinned, the righteousness that Adam and Eve left behind in the garden. We can pursue biblical sexuality not because we're perfect people, but because a perfect Savior has offered us grace. And so we'll close it this way as our call to action. Here's what we do in light of this passage. Number one, we pursue biblical sexuality. And that means sexuality in marriage, one man, one woman. Number two, we avoid anything contrary, and we work within our families, within our schools, within our society to help, drift, to help, to help stop the drift away and help point others, point the next generation, point, point the children that are coming, that are growing up, point them towards what biblical sexuality is because it's good for them and it's good for the world. It's good for society. We build discipline in all areas of your life. Fight sexual temptation by building discipline in all areas. As you pursue Christ, you will receive more energy and strength to fight the temptations you face. And finally, put yourself in a context where you could actually receive correction from another person. Live life close enough to another person where that other person would see your sin in such a way that he or she could address it and say, I see you failing. I see you falling short. It's time to turn. And when somebody says it's time to turn, listen, 
have ears to hear, hear them out and see what God is saying through that. I'm going to ask the band to come up and, and join me on stage. We have the opportunity, and I love it. I love where we are this Sunday. Because what I just told you is that we're a room full of sinners, all in need of the gospel. Every single one of us has failed. Some of us have failed in extreme ways, and you're, you're riddled with guilt and brokenness, and you don't know what to do with the feeling of heaviness you have. Some of us have, have already built our lives around God's reconciliation and grace and repentance, and we just feel so thankful for who He is and what He has done for us. But wherever you are, as we approach this table, this table is a table for sinners. But it's a table for sinners that are saved by grace. And so when we take the broken body of Jesus, let's have the guys that are serving, y'all come on up. As we take the broken body of Jesus this morning, what's going to happen is these guys are going to help pass, us, pass it out. They're going to come down the aisle. You're going to receive the bread first. Then they'll come. They'll bring the juice. You're going to receive the juice. The band's going to be leading us in worship. And so you can choose how you're, how you're going to worship in this time. You can sit at your seat. You can ponder the elements, the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. You can stand and sing. You can come before the altar and kneel for prayer. But here's what I need you to know. That what this represents is new life offered to every single sinner in the room. And some of us need to be refilled with a sense of that new life. Some of us need to, despite following Jesus for years, we need to this morning remind ourselves of the grace at the table of what being filled with the body of Christ, filled with the blood of Christ really feels like. So prepare your hearts for that experience. But if you've never done this before, if you've never truly experienced Christ and received forgiveness for your sins, this table is for you too, to receive it for the first time for sexual sinners, for sinners of all kinds, for whoever you came from, for whoever you are, whatever you have done, this is the gospel. When you repent of your sins, Jesus comes to give you new life. And you can actually become a part of his body, consume his body, consume his blood, and that sacrifice is given to you. But if you're in the category that you don't, you don't believe it, I would encourage you not to take it. I would encourage you to consider where you are with Christ, where you are in your understanding of who God is. And do not receive it because this is a meal in which we're proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So prepare your hearts now. As I, as I pass these out to these guys, um, as I said, the band's going to be leading us in worship. You can sing. You can reflect. But do as the Spirit leads.
originally a remembrance of God the Father removing his people from slavery in Egypt many thousands of years ago. And yet, after generations of celebrating the Passover meal in which, in which the Israelites celebrated their redemption, their escape from slavery, that God, their king, had ransomed them from this this, this evil foreign power. Jesus, the night before the resurrection, held up a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is not just about God's redemption centuries ago. This is about God's redemption tomorrow night. Because this is my body broken for you. So when we take and eat, we remember that God has sent his son to die for me and for you, for anyone that would receive that message and receive redemption from every nation, tongue, and tribe. We do this in remembrance of him. And then we take the cup, reminding us that rebellion against a king requires punishment and the sins that we commit against God the immortal king of kings and lord of lords store up for us condemnation and there's one way to pay the penalty for sin and it is through blood and the old testament is full of stories and processes to, for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to create temporary covering, temporary atonement over sins of people. When Jesus died, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. We do this in remembrance of him, remembering that the sin of one man who was the son of God, who was God himself, atoned for the sins of all who believe. We do this in remembrance of him. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we also take up an offering. And what we do in this offering, this is called our Samaritan offering, in which we intentionally use this money not to fund the ongoing ministries of the church, not even to fund any ministry salaries for staff or missionaries or ongoing things we do in our church, but this ministry goes outside of our church it goes to physical felt needs of those in our church community and those within our greater community. And so I'm going to pray for this offering. And I want you to pray with me that this offering would end up in the hands of those that need it. And that the physical provision that this money can provide would open doors for the gospel to be presented. We had two young girls come to us this morning and say, we want to do something about people that are hungry in our community. We want your help. This is another way in which we as a church want to serve the physical felt needs of the community so that ultimately the gospel truth can be proclaimed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to give. Give out of the abundance of what you have given to us. 
Father, use this money, use this offering for your glory to build your kingdom in our community. Show us what to give. Father, bless us as we give, as we focus our hearts and minds on your kingdom. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Others, we close this morning. We look to you as your greatness. We stand in silent awe for just a minute. Because, Father, you have made a way for broken sinners to gain the inheritance of an eternal kingdom, to gain life, purpose, and hope in a world that seems so broken from our vantage point, and yet a world in which your kingdom still moves, in which your spirit still flows freely through us. So, Father, remind us of your presence. Restore us continually. Guide us in your wisdom. In Christ's name we pray. Now remain standing and receive the blessing from the Lord. From number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you.